Go ahead and keep your Bible out. John's right. I'm going to try to explain what this means to us today. And I need to warn you up front, if you got a copy of the Followers 5 on your way in, this morning as I was praying through my sermon, I realized there were two sermons here. And so I'm splitting it. So this week we'll get point one, and next week we'll get point two. So you'll have to come back next week if you want to know how it ends. So... Anyway, I was doing some research this week and uh, was reading about the West African country of Mali. Um, to the north of the country is the Saharan Desert. Uh, just a vast desert wasteland. To the south of the country, they have this region they call the Sahel. And it's a transitional biome between desert and coastal. And because of the topography and geology of the country, they have a major water crisis. There's about 320,000 square miles of Mali that lacks adequate water. Can you imagine that? 320,000 square miles. I'm not great at math, but that's a big place. And so in the past, charities and NGOs would come in with engineers and professional drilling specialists, and they would do the charity thing, where they would dig wells for all these Malian villages. But because there's so little water available, all kinds of armed conflict is happening over what water there actually is. And so it's gotten to the point where between the armed Islamic insurgents and the different villages fighting one another, it's just not even safe enough for them to go in and dig wells for these people. And so this country is left like a barren desert wasteland. But 10 years ago, somebody had this crazy idea that instead of bringing in all these Western people and digging these massive wells, what if we dug micro-wells by hand. And so over the past 10 years, 150 or so, hand-dug or hand-drilled wells have been placed in strategic places all around the country. Now, instead of having to draw their water up from a pond containing all kind of bacteria that led to cholera and all other kind of diseases, now people can walk several miles, use a hand pump, and draw up water from the earth. It's amazing. A desert wasteland, but there's a little bit of hope. The reason I started looking, I actually Googled desert survival stories, trying to find a good intro to grab your attention, and, and then I stumbled on this whole thing about the hand dug wells, because there have certainly been times in my life when I felt like my life was a desert wasteland. I felt barren, withered, dried up, felt burned over. I, I, I didn't have any peace, certainly didn't have any fruit. And if you had seen me, you would have known how little joy I actually had. I don't know, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've been in one of those seasons, just a, a desert wilderness season of life. Maybe you weren't as bad off as I was, but maybe you got the sense that there had to be something more 
There's got to be something better than this desert of a life. I don't know, in a room this size, there's a good chance some of you are in the desert right now. And you look at your relationships, you look at your mindset, and you just take a good hard look at your life. And you feel dried up and withered. And listen, if that's you today, I, I want to tell you what I believe. You could be a thousand places on Labor Day. Okay? Probably wish you were a few other places than here. But for some reason, God rearranged all the circumstances of your life so he could look you in the eye today. So he could get right in your ear and tell you that there's hope for you. You don't have to live the wilderness life anymore. If you will dig deep into who Jesus is, if you will learn to depend on him as if your life requires it, if you'll listen to him, if you will abide in him, you can live with joy. That's what he wants you to leave with today. If you abide in Jesus, you can live with joy. This passage is beautiful. I know you know it and love it. It's situated in this section of John's gospel that scholars call the farewell discourse. It begins in John 13 with Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, stretches all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17 where Jesus prays for his disciples and for the church. Throughout these chapters, Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for what lies ahead. He knows he's about to be betrayed and crucified, and so he wants them to have the resources to decipher the meaning of his death. But he also wants to give them hope that, hey, I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. The world's got trouble, but I'm giving you peace. He wanted them to know how even when he was gone, they could continue to have an ongoing relationship with him. In some ways, better than the one they'd had walking behind him down the dusty roads of Palestine, they were going to have his spirit, another comforter, within them. And so as Jesus is trying to give them all this stuff, the, the final lessons he gives them before his crucifixion, he reaches for this symbol, this picture, this illustration of a deep spiritual truth. It's a picture from everyday life, a picture from their shared religious background, and a picture that we're going to look at this week and apparently next week. The vine and the branches. So I want to read it again with you, just verses 1 to 6. And I want you to pay careful attention, and I want you to use your sanctified imagination. Okay, I want you to see what Jesus says. Don't just hear it, see it. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. 
for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. You have the picture in your mind. Maybe you've seen the great vineyards of Napa Valley. Or maybe you're hillbilly, bumpkin, redneck like me, and you think of muscadines, wild grapes growing on somebody's trellis. In any case, I hope you have the picture and the vine and the branches. It's a parable. No plot. There's not a main actor and um, some sequence of events that happens. It's just a, a standstill picture that he wants to use to try to drive it into your heart. And this is the truth I think he is trying to say in his perfect way of saying it, that it's possible for followers of Jesus like you and me to live fruitful and joyful lives, but only when we are connected to Jesus. This abiding relationship is fundamental to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So fundamental that Jesus takes one of the last moments he has with his disciples to explain it. But if I can be honest with you, I think it's hard to understand. This word abide is like a major roadblock for me and, an, and like a hurdle. I'm trying to always wrap my mind. What exactly does it mean to abide in Jesus? And so I use every tool I have at my disposal to try to wrap my mind around biblical concepts. So I pulled out my Greek dictionary this week. The Greek word for abide simply means this. Stay where you are. Continue unchanged in your state. That's not very helpful to me. Can I be honest with you? That's like, okay, stay where you are, remain unchanged in your state. Something about Jesus' picture implies something deeper than simply being unchanged and static. He, he reaches for a picture, and the picture he reaches for is important. The true vine and the branches. So this image of the vine and the branches, as foreign as it is to us, matters. Scholars tell us the vine image was one of the most common motifs in all world religions. And this was especially the case for the Jewish people. The coins they minted had vines on it. And you walk into the temple courtyard and into the temple itself and you'd see all the iconography, vines everywhere. That's because throughout the Old Testament, the prophets and psalmists saw Israel, God's covenant people, as the vine or vineyard of God. You should read Psalm 80. It's beautiful. Asaph talks about the way God redeemed his people out of slavery in Egypt and planted them in the land of Canaan as a gardener would plant a choice vine. Isaiah reaches for this image in Isaiah 5 and sings a song. He says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug all around it and removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it, and he dug out a wine vat. Now, don't you get the feel that as Isaiah thinks about all that God has done for the people of Israel, he reaches for this symbol, this, this master gardener, this venter, who plants a vine to prepare wine, and then something went terribly wrong. He says in Isaiah 5.3, My beloved expected it to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. 
And as a result, God warned his people through the prophet that he was going to tear down the wall around the vineyard and he was going to allow wild men to come in and trample it down. I mean, this is crazy. But of all the times in the Old Testament where the prophets and psalmists speak of Israel as the vine of God every time, it's in connection with the judgment of God for the corruption of the nation and for their failure to produce good fruit. Every time. Israel's divine, but it's rotten to its core. And surely that's why Jesus calls himself the true vine. I mean, he stands distinct over against any other vine that ever has been or ever will be. He wanted his disciples to know it is possible for them to bear fruit, but there's only one way it was going to work. Wouldn't do for them to connect themselves to the nation or customs of ancient Israel. Thinking like, hey, if we get real serious about the law, then we'll bear the fruit that God desires. There's only one way. It was going to be as they connected themselves to him. He says, abide in me. Abide in me. And then you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Listen, maybe you're like me and you think the word abide is antiquated. A little old-fashioned, a little hard to understand, but it's the word Jesus used. He said, abide in me. And sometimes I think Jesus speaks to us in symbols and riddles because he demands from us a little effort. He wants you to think about the relationship he's calling you to. It's not going to be easy. It's not always going to be nice. Sometimes there's going to be some pruning involved. But if you will abide, a fruitful life is yours for the taking. I mean, think about that vine you saw earlier. I mean, every one of those branches that hangs down with clusters of grapes draws up all the water and nutrients it needs from the one vine that's connected to the ground. On their own, they're useless. They're trash. You put them in your burn pile, wait till it rains, and then you light them up with some kerosene or diesel, right? That's what a dead branch is good for. But if the branch stays connected to the vine, then it produces all kind of wonderful fruit to bless the people around it. In the same way, followers of Jesus draw up everything they need for the flourishing life He promises from Him. From Him. That's why I think to abide in Jesus simply means to cultivate an attitude of dependency on Him for everything you need. Yeah, say that with you one more time. This is Brad Mills, okay? It's a fallible definition. You'll find other people. But I think what Jesus is really trying to get at when He says abide in Him he wants you to cultivate an attitude of dependency on Him for everything you need. That's what it means to abide. It's what Paul describes throughout his letters, but especially in the book of Ephesians. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which he purposed in him, 
with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him also we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Listen, there's no good thing that God wants to do in your life that comes apart from Christ. And I like to think of them as like seeds. Every last good thing that God wants to do in you from before time began when He chose you in Christ to that moment in time when you heard the gospel and He drew you to Himself and He sealed you with His Holy Spirit and adopted you into His family, to the day when you see Him face to face and He makes you new, conformed perfectly to the image of Jesus. Nothing of that can come to you apart from Christ. And so when Jesus says, Abide in Me, and I in you, and you'll bear much fruit, those things are like seeds. They're dormant. They're no good unless you don't abide in Him. That's the only way they will blossom into the fullness that God has planned for you. That's why I like the way the South African pastor, Andrew Murray, says it. He's got this great book called Abiding in Christ. You ought to read it. It says, Abiding is nothing but the acceptance of my position, my consent to be kept there, the surrender of faith to the strong vine to hold the frail branch. Listen, if you are in a desert place and you wish to God that your life would turn around and bear fruit, there's only one way to get there. It's not through the diligent effort of self-made religion. It's not through trying your hardest. It's not through doing better. It's through willing surrender to Christ. Staying connected to Him dependent on Him. And here's the rub. I mean, of all the challenging verses you come to in Scripture, I mean, of all the concepts that cause me to take pause, surely this idea is one of the hardest. I mean, think of, is, let me just ask you, just by a show of hands, how many of you like to depend on other people? Are you the type of person who likes to do things yourself? No, none of y'all are that way. I'm that way. Man, I am the world's worst. I won't ask for help until I've tried it my way, busted my knuckles, changing a water pump on my truck. I'm going to do it. And hey, if I have to ask for help later, uh, then that's what it'll take. But I'm going to give it my best shot first. I don't want to depend on other people. I don't want to put my car in the shop and wait on some guy to call me and tell me it's done. I'm just going to get in there and do it myself. Take me five times as long, but hey... It's me doing the work. I don't know, maybe you're that way. That's the sort of thing I'm walking through right now. My truck's been parked in my driveway, and I'm almost there. I just can't find one O-ring, okay? No <laughs> shop has it in stock. I'm waiting on an O-ring. But the problem is this. You and I, who are self-sufficient and strong and totally happy just to depend on what we can do in ourselves, bring that attitude to Jesus. And it's not a water pump. It's a hardened heart. It's selfishness that's so deeply ingrained into every fiber of my being that no matter how hard I try, I end up treating the people I love disrespectfully. 
I end up taking advantage of them and taking for granted that they're going to do the things that I expect them to do. doesn't matter how hard I try. I'm still the old messed up bag of bones that I am. And so if you're trying to produce a flourishing life out of your own self-effort, out of some self-help book you found, out of some guy on YouTube, you're never going to get there. Jesus says, it's not the strong or the wise or the rich who live fruitful lives, but the person who abides in me. Apart from me, you can't do anything. You're worthless. All the good things that he wants to do in you are found by abiding in him. Oh, isn't that simple? You take an inventory of what you wish were different about your life and write it down in a list. What kind of God would he be to not do that for you? Jesus one day was talking with the Pharisees, trying to help them grasp the love of the Father for his people. He said, how many of you, how many of you, if your children asked you for a loaf of bread, would give them a stone? How many of you, if your son asked you for a fish, you'd give him a serpent instead? He said, if you men who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more the Father in heaven delights to give good gifts to his children? You think that inventory you've taken of your life and all the things you wish were different don't resonate in the heart of God? You think he doesn't see the withered branches of your life, the barren desert you've been living in, and his heart doesn't break for you? Do you not think he doesn't want your family to be marked by harmony and love? You think he wants you to open up the scriptures every morning and say, I'm not getting anything out of this? You think he wants you to sit in church with your arms crossed? I don't get anything out of this. No. He gave his son that you'd have life and have it abundantly. The problem is you're not abiding in him. You're not connected to him. If you would connect yourself to him, if you would abide in him, if you'd remain in him, you'd bear much fruit. But your life's barren because you're not with him. Listen, he wants you to develop a flourishing life. He wants your life to be marked by joy. But it only comes by depending on him, abiding in him. And so how do you get there? Here's the picture. We understand what it means, but okay. In daily practice, what should I do? Well, I want you to look at the first part of it this week. We'll see the second part of it next week, but in verses 7 to 10. He says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. Listen, maybe the abiding relationship, as I've described it this morning, sounds mystical to you, a little bit out there. But I want you to see how practical it is. I know as we've read these passages over and over and over this morning, you've 
Notice the frequency with which Jesus references his words. His words, his words, his words. My words, the word. And I think that's the first way we abide in Jesus. We root our lives into his words. We root our lives into his words. Now, we are a Bible church. I'm a Bible guy. We read the Bible. We preach the Bible. And that's because Christianity is what some people call a religion of the book. We're like our Jewish forefathers in that way. The author of the letter to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1 that in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in the last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And so we stand in continuity with the people of Moses who read the covenants and the laws and build their lives on it. Only we have something better. That those things which were types and shadows and pointed their way to Jesus have been overshadowed themselves by the reality of the thing they pointed towards. By the Son, who is the very image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He says that in Him all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. So if you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus. And that's an important distinction. All throughout the Old Testament, you'll read the Scriptures talk about itself. So God tells Joshua in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do everything that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Later we come to Psalm 119, which teaches us to view the law of God as a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But I know you noticed, Jesus doesn't say abide in the law. Jesus had lots to say about the law. Don't think that I came to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish it, but I came to fulfill it. But he didn't say abide in the law. Apparently Jesus wasn't a Baptist because he didn't say abide in the Bible. That's what I'd say. Make sure you're doing your quiet time every day, right? Of course, Jesus lived on the Word of God. He said, it's not by bread alone that man shall live, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus loved the Bible. When he's talking about abiding, he didn't say abide in the law. He didn't say abide in the Bible. He said, abide in me and let my words abide in you. And this is so important. When you think about abiding in Jesus' words, I think what he means is, as one scholar says, all the sum total of the utterances Jesus made together constitute his word. Everything Jesus said. Every moral and ethical command, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Somebody slaps you in the face, turn the other cheek and let them slap that one also. If somebody says, walk a mile, go with them too. If somebody asks for the shirt off your back, give them your coat. Every moral and ethical command Jesus said. And then every time he spoke and revealed his true character and identity, I am the good shepherd, I am the true vine. His disciples say, we want to see the Father. He says, are you foolish? Haven't you been with me so long? Don't you understand that I and the Father are one? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Every word Jesus spoke revealing who he really was. Take all of that, sum it up, and that is the words about Jesus. That is what you and I as his followers are called to live in. It's supposed to be our all-encompassing reality. The lenses through which we see the world. Our worldview. 
that every situation and circumstance is filtered through what Jesus has said. It's the bedrock and foundation of our life because we know that the person who hears his words and doesn't act on them is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. When the rain came and the winds blew and the waters rose, the man's house came crashing down. But the person who hears his words and does them will be like the man who built his house on the rock. The words of Jesus, which take root in our heart and by the power of the Spirit are applied to our lives until we are conformed into His image, until we bear fruit. Are you abiding in His words? I like the way John put it later in one of the letters he wrote to his church. As for you... Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. So if you want to learn to abide in Christ, if you want to depend on Him by rooting your life in His words, there's two things you've got to do. One, you've got to believe His words. Do you still believe what you heard from the beginning? I think as I get older, I'm tempted to make a mess of the simplicity that I learned in Sunday school. Some sweet old lady taught me, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. That's, you don't graduate beyond that. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I'll stand alone in the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. You don't advance beyond what you heard from the beginning. I sometimes slip into my stock gospel presentation on Sunday mornings. And I'll say something like, you know, though God created a perfect place for people, our first parents rebelled against His authority, and because of their sin, we inherit from them a sinful nature, and we add to their sin with sins of our own. But though we rebelled against God, God didn't stop loving us, and He sent His own Son, Jesus, to take on human flesh and to perfectly fulfill the law, obeying every one of His commands. And then at the end of His perfect life, He offered Himself up as a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. And the promise is this, that if anybody will repent of their sins and believe the good news, they'll have eternal life with Him forever. And I'll say that, and typically, it's towards the end of my sermon, and, and it's like the cue for people to fold up their Bibles and to get ready to go. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, we've heard this before. Have you heard this before? Have you heard this before? You don't graduate beyond the gospel. Do you advance beyond the reality that apart from Christ's work in your life, you are a sinner headed for the judgment of God? You deserve that. But in Him, you have forgiveness of your sins and redemption. You've been adopted into His family and sealed with His Spirit. In Him is eternal life. Do you believe it? Or have somewhere along the way you've forgotten And the gospel's something for little kids, but us grown-ups, we got to get to work and do it ourselves. No, you can't grow. Of course, as time goes on, we learn new things about God. And our understanding of Him 
enlargens. But really, the growth you and I want, the flourishing life we want to live is only found as we drill down deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the truth of who Jesus is. You understand it more only because you know you got more sins that you need to be forgiven of. You see the depth of your depravity in ways you never thought possible. Like the Scottish preacher Robert Murray McChain, who after one service, an old lady from his church came up to him and said, Oh, Pastor, I hope one day I attain to the levels of grace that you've achieved. He said, Dear sister, if you saw what was in my soul, you'd spit in my face. But as for me, I'm going to keep believing what I heard from the beginning. No matter how much I learn, no matter what I accomplish, no matter what meager level of sanctification I might achieve, I'm nothing apart from Jesus. Do you believe that? So you want to abide in Jesus by rooting your life in His Word. You've got to believe it, and then you've got to obey it. You've got to obey it. That's what He says, isn't it? If you keep My commandments, you'll abide in My love, just as I've kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. You want to root your life in Jesus' words, you've got to obey His words. He told His disciples to teach the future generations of Christians to observe everything He commanded. To obey everything He commanded. Not simple enough to believe that He means that. That obedience to Christ isn't an optional add-on for those really zealous people. But that obedience to Christ is part and parcel of what it means to know and follow Him. And if I want to abide in Him, that means I better understand the words He's spoken and try to align my life to live according to them. He says, John says in 1 John 2, 3, we looked at this last week, this is maybe, I don't know, one of the greatest passages in all the Bible about following Christ. By this we know that we've come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I've come to know Him, but doesn't keep His commandments, is a liar. The truth isn't in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same way he walked. Listen, I don't know, maybe you're in one of these barren desert seasons of life. I might just ask you, are you living obediently to Christ? According to these words here, The person who abides in Jesus keeps his commands. And so I think it's a fair deduction to say that almost every instance almost every instance of a barren life is a result of disobedience to Christ's word or maybe at best disregard of it. And so are you Obeying Christ. I mean, just think about the seasons of your life. Maybe you're not in one now, but think about the seasons of life. When you have felt spiritually frustrated and withered, were those the seasons of life when you were drawing closer to Christ than you'd ever drawn before? When you doubled down and said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, and you committed yourself to obedience regardless of what was happening around you. Not me. Those seasons of life when I felt most barren and withered 
were seasons of life when I was disregarding the things I knew God had called me to do. When I was living in disobedience. And so if you want to abide in Christ, if you want to live a flourishing and fruitful life, you do that by obeying His commands. It's impossible to bear fruit without it. And so can I challenge you today to make a commitment to root your life in Jesus' words? I don't want you to abide in the Bible. I don't want you to abide in the law. I don't want you to abide in your quiet time. I want you to abide in Jesus. And I want you to abide in Jesus by rooting your life in His words. Maybe what you need to do tomorrow is wake up, get your cup of coffee, grab a Bible. I've been using the YouVersion Bible app, and I really, really love it. I've always been a physical Bible guy, but I like the digital thing. It's growing on me. And maybe you need to start in the Gospel of Matthew. And just read the life of Jesus. And then when you're done with Matthew, maybe you just need to read the Gospel of Mark. When you're done with Mark, maybe you just need to read the Gospel of Luke. When you're done with Luke, maybe you just need to read the Gospel of John. And when you're done with John, maybe you need to start over. And you need to read the life of Jesus over and over and over and over again until you come face to face with the God who loves you. Until you read His words and they become the foundation of your life. Until they're the underground well that you draw up everything you need for your life. Until you start thinking the way Jesus thinks. You start analyzing situations the, Jesus, the way Jesus would analyze them. Until you start acting the way Jesus acted. Until you love people selflessly and sacrificially. Like your family members and your co-workers and your enemies. Until you want the things Jesus wants. Until you can pray with gut-level honesty to God, not my will be done, but your will be done. Maybe you need to do that. Can I challenge you to commit to it? To discover the God who loves you by reading the Gospels. You cannot live a fruitful life apart from it. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. You are destined for a barren and withered life unless you abide in Christ. He says, whoever abides in me and I in them bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Will you bow your heads with me? And as you do, I want to ask you a couple of questions. These are questions for you to think about. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or do anything like that. I just want to ask you to think about it. Are you abiding in Jesus by rooting your life in His words? What do His words mean to you, really? Are they the foundation of your life? Are they the underground reserve from which you're drawing? Maybe I ask you in a different way. Do you see fruit in your life? Jesus says we can tell a good tree from a bad tree by looking at the fruit it produces. And so if I were to look at your life, if Jesus were to look at your life, and analyze the fruit that's there, what would he see? Paul talks about some of that fruit in the book of Galatians. He talks about love. 
You see love in your life? Of course for the people closest to you, but what about the people who hate your guts? What about joy? Hey, when you abide in Jesus, you can live with joy. What about peace and patience? Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. You see that fruit in your life? Is there something in that list that would change everything about the way you lived? This morning I think God would have you know every good thing Every fruitful thing that you need is found in Jesus.